You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. Righteous deeds are multiplied in the congregation where there is peace and reconciliation. Dan McCartney writes, The tongue's fire spreads destruction, but the seeds of peace-doing disseminate into a harvest of righteousness. Some plants thrive in acidic soil. Some don't. If we want a harvest of righteousness in our work as a church here at Hope Bible Church, there has to be certain growing conditions for that to be present. The growing conditions of righteousness are peace. If a vine were to catch fire, an entire vineyard could be burned down and ruined because of the damaging flames. But what if something were to catch fire in a good way? What if you were open and vulnerable, and by being that way, it helped others to do the same? Today, Pastor Tom is saying that if more people were vulnerable and shared their struggles, sharing their weaknesses, there would be more openness in relationship. By doing this, the church as a whole would actually be healthier. Now here's Pastor Tom in the book of Romans chapter 12 as he continues his message, Heavenly or Hellish Wisdom. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, and it's not always possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That includes ladies, by the way. That's how the Bible works. Be at peace with all women, too. You must be calm when others are being too critical. You have to bring people together when others are turning their back and walking away. You'll communicate directly with people and not behind their backs. You'll deal evenly and gently with others when they fall into sin and not aggravated by too pompous a statement about their sin. You'll be calm. You'll not be an alarmist. You'll understand that sin is part of the way it is. And you'll just calmly work people back into agreement. You'll be against division of all kinds in the church. You'll recognize that Jesus put everyone in the church on the same team. We're all on the same team. A peacemaker is a unity protector. At work, you will not jump on the popular bandwagon against the less popular person. No one likes them, and so you find it easy to join the gossip against them. No, you will not gossip. If you want peace, you'll work for righteousness. Those two attributes, peace and righteousness, always kiss. They love each other. The third pearl in the string is gentleness. Well, we kind of covered this one back in verse 13, so I won't say as much about it. But actually, it's a slightly different word that is used. It's a little bit difficult to translate into English. It means be willing to yield yourself to what others want. Oh, that's hard, isn't it? Be willing to yield yourself to what other people want. No way. When I go home, I want it the way I want it. Well, then you're not this. You see? You're not this. If it has to be your way, then you're not this. Sometimes it's translated, be considerate, be courteous, reasonable, or kindly, or fair, or moderate. It involves respecting the feelings of other people, thinking first about what your words and actions will mean to other people. 1 Peter 2.18 says, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. That's the opposite. Unreasonable, stubborn, too demanding, driving people, harsh, stern, difficult to get along with, nitpicky. A truly wise person is not that way. A truly wise person is gentle in all of his dealings with other people. A gentle answer turns what? Away wrath, right? Harsh words stirs up anger. 1 Timothy 3.3 tells all overseers they must be gentle in dealing with people because they'll have to deal with a lot of people. Again, Christ is the wondrous example. From the meek and mild child in the Bethlehem cave, and yes, it was a cave, 
to the gentle teacher on the hillside. Jesus was a delight to be around. Jesus was a magnet with his graciousness, his kindness, his generosity. People wanted to be around him. Yes, he was convicting, but they wanted to listen to him. When the words fell from his lips, they were amazed how he spoke. He was a delight. He didn't push people away. He drew them in. Are you like that? Do you draw people in? Matthew 12, 19 describes his character. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he's not loud and obnoxious. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. He'll be gentle. As king, Jesus has every right to be loud and angry against those who are opposing his reign. Every right to do that. But he's not stern. Nor does he chide us when we act foolishly and, and don't listen to his teaching. He overflows with graciousness. You know, his 12 apostles could easily have been dumped. I mean, you, you check out those guys in the Gospels and you're like, when are they ever going to learn? There are plenty of women around he could have chosen from that were catching the spiritual message faster than those, those numbskulls. They were constantly learning like, we don't get it. We don't get it. Why did he pick them? They were by no means an excellent lot and yet he stayed with them. He developed them. He saw what they would become, and he put up with what they were. That's this. That's this kind of attribute. Oh, those kind of people are nice to be around, aren't they? You're thinking of someone in your own mind right now. I know someone that's like that. That's a blessed person. Love them, care for them, hang around them. How far you will get in your relationships depends on how willing you are to bend with others. You'll have better relationships that way. How much you can hold your words back until you can say the words sweetly. Right? The heart of the wise man instructs his mouth and adds persuasiveness to his. Well, I could say it this way and I could say it at this timing, but those won't work well. I'll save it for this moment in this setting and I'll say it this way, then they'll listen. That's wisdom. Pearl number four is reasonable. It goes along with that. Eurethes means a willing deference to others. Not in the sense of being weak and mamby-pamby or without conviction. Not sinful compromise, but open-minded to reason. Willing to listen to other people. Ready to cooperate when someone shows another way of doing something, teachable, compliant, not stubborn. Was Christ like that? His teachings were reasonable. When he's in the debates, he goes right to the scripture and he says, here's what the scripture says. He doesn't yell and scream and get all angry at them. He's reasonable. He brings them to, to the scriptures and he reasons from the scriptures with people to get them to understand. Christ was reasonable. He was not in the world to push his way. He was in the world to do his father's way. The Pharisees were exactly the opposite in the way that they dealt with the masses. As religious leaders, they really didn't understand this. Jesus told them that they strained out gnats and swallowed camels. What an image, right? It's a guy straining out a gnat so he doesn't get it in his food and he goes and swallows a camel. How disgusting. I have to think about that. What an image of their folly meticulous in ways that don't matter and not careful at all in big things that do matter. The Pharisees constantly made lesser things into greater things. They turned certain biblical principles into absolute law while ignoring other biblical truths. And then as they applied those through the years, they became traditions and their traditions blocked out God's law. They went beyond the reasonableness of Scripture. Scripture is balanced. It knows how to deal with holiness in a world of sin. The law of God is balanced. The teachings of Christ are balanced. They claimed things were sin which were not sin. Meanwhile, they sinned in great ways that didn't bother them at all. They buried Judaism in legalism. 
They were unbending in ways that should have been much more gracious. Jesus was all about the big picture. That's what he came down. What, what was he always talking about? He told parable after parable. What were they always about? The kingdom of God, big picture. The glory of the Father. Obedience to the weightier aspects of the law. Unfortunately, sometimes conservative Christian religion unknowingly imitates the Pharisees when they get wrapped up in minutia of application and calling non-compliance to those small things a sin. If you're unbending on smaller issues, and there are many, many of them, then you don't have God's wisdom. Listen to me, beloved, on this. Strong conviction in areas not explicitly taught in Scripture is not God's wisdom. It's bordering on being Pharisaic, and when hypocrisy joins in with it, it becomes Pharisaic. It's not reasonable, it's not understanding, it's not true religion. When you have a conviction in small areas, the only thing you can do is divide people from you and your family. The only thing that can do is divide a church. Taking resolute stands on little things is never wise. Wise people are known as Jesus was for being about big things, big things, reasonable things in a reasonable manner. The fifth pearl is the pearl full of mercy. What is mercy? Sometimes people say, I have so much mercy in my heart for someone. Mercy is not a feeling. Mercy is an action. It's an act of compassion for people who have need. That's what mercy is. You can have all the feeling in your heart you want. That can be a feeling of compassion. Mercy may begin with a feeling of compassion, but it has to go into an action where you actually meet a need. Otherwise, it's not really mercy. Mercy is something that should never be forced. You can't force someone to be merciful. God has to work in the heart, change the heart, so that out of their own goodwill, they decide, I want to be merciful. Does that make sense? Government sometimes tries to force the mercy deeds upon its citizens. Take the money, tax them, and take care of the poor. That is not mercy. It's always easy to be generous with someone else's money, by the way. Mercy that actually brings glory to God and not glory to the state is where the gospel changes lives and then people say of their own money, I want to give it to someone who has need. Or of their own time, I want to give it to serve someone and help someone who has need. That's mercy and that's what Jesus Christ demonstrated. We are to give, it says in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, not grudgingly nor under compulsion for God loves a what? A cheerful giver. Mercy is always from the heart or it's not mercy at all. Like the Good Samaritan, he's traveling along the way, he sees the guy beat up, no one compelled him to give, he stopped, bandaged his wounds, threw him on his, what was it, a donkey, camel, I can't remember, and then took him to the inn, paid for his care, and went on. Did anyone force him to do that? Did the government require that of him? No, he just wanted to do it, and who gets the glory for that? The glory goes to God, because people are giving because God changed their lives. Wise people show mercy, why is that? You ever connect, this is a wise person, because he shows mercy. You might say he's a loving person, right? But here it says he's a wise person because he's merciful. Why is that? Well, part of the answer was back in James 2.13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Oh, when I get to judgment day, I want to be someone who's shown mercy. There's wisdom. If you don't get it at any other level, there's that. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Look, if we need mercy from God... Shouldn't we turn around and give it to others? Remember the parable of the, the king that forgave the great debt and the servant that was forgiven goes out and chokes the guy with a little debt, right? Pay everything you owe. God's not going to forgive you. If you're shown mercy, show mercy to others. You might say, but, but that person doesn't deserve my mercy. I would agree. They do not deserve mercy. Mercy is never about what somebody deserves. If you can look at someone and say, you know, they were this and they were that and now they got what was coming to them. You're right. 
But mercy doesn't look at what someone deserves. It looks at what they need, poor thing that they are. They can be your enemy and you can show mercy to them. They can be someone who harmed you and you can show mercy to them. They can be the fool in the gutter that drank too much and took drugs and you can still what? Show mercy to them. That's what we are to do. That's what Christ did. He healed 10 lepers one time. Do you remember the number that turned back and said thank you to him? Who know? Where's the other nine, he said? Weren't there 10 that I healed? Imagine that, having this worst skin disease. You get healed from it instantly. No fake healings with Christ. Instantly. Not, well, in about a month, your symptoms will go away. But trust me, brother, you were healed. None of that. That's false healing. Boom, they were healed. You don't give thanks for that? Christ was merciful to everyone. The blind man called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what did he do? He healed him. The Canaanite woman, not a Jew, cried out, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David, my daughter is cruelly demon-possessed. He tested her. You know, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. Ouch. And she doesn't go, you know, all politically correct on him. How dare you call me a dog? We have just as much right in here as... She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat from the master's table sometimes. Oh, daughter, your faith is great. Mercy was given. Christ was merciful. Being around his heart, seeing all the mercy. The disciples must have once in a while said, you know, we've done enough healing for today. I'm tired. Can we just go and enjoy some downtime, Lord? It was great to be around. Without mercy in his heart, Jesus would never have walked the Via Dolorosa to the hill of Calvary, right? He never would have hung on the cross with outstretched arms saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's those outstretched arms that are there beckoning you. Maybe you haven't turned to Christ for mercy yet. Maybe you don't realize you need it. You need it. You have sins and you will face judgment from God Almighty. Jesus came on a saving mission. His arms are outstretched. He bled and he died for you. All you need to do is say, have mercy on me, son of David, and he will. Believe in him. Don't complain against the wrongdoers who don't deserve mercy. You receive mercy. How many sins were you forgiven for? I can't count mine. The church should be in the forefront of mercy deeds to people and on getting the gospel of mercy out to people. The sixth pearl is full of good fruits. That full of modifies both of those. So this isn't just someone who has a couple of good fruits, but he's full of good fruits. Good is agathos. It points to the beneficial aspect of these fruits. The plural fruits points to the many good fruits. You look at a person's life and you see many beneficial things coming from their life. There they are in their relationships and their teaching and the way they deal with people and how they witness and how they worship and how they conduct themselves, how they work in the workplace, how their family is. You look around them and you see many beneficial things. This is a person who has many beneficial fruits and you're like, there's a wise person. Because they understand life. They understand what life is all about. And they figured out how to help here and how to deal with this situation. They're fixing things and building things up. Just like you go into someone's home and they're a great mechanic and they can fix everything. And you say, ah, you're wise and skilled with mechanics. Here they're fixing everything in life. People are breaking things all the time all over the place. Would you agree? Relationships are breaking. Politics breaks down. Businesses break down. Brothers and sisters get on each other's throats, but a wise person, he's putting everything back together. He's skilled. He understands how it goes. He's full of good fruits. By the way, you know people by their fruits. Jesus said that, right? You come up to a a, a tree. It's got all kinds of beautiful fruit on it. You walk up to it. You're like, wow, this is a good tree. This is a healthy tree. Wish I had one of those in my house. You come up to a tree, and it's just filled with terrible fruit. It's rotting. It looks bad. And you say, what? This is a bad tree. That's how it is with people. 
That's how Jesus taught us to have this sermon. Christ was filled with good fruits from his thousands of miracles, thousands of miracles, instantaneous healings, to washing the disciples' feet, to raising people from the dead. Jesus brought much fruit. Should be that way with us. May I ask you this? Are you known for the good that you do? The people, when they know you, they know, well, that, you know, that person is helpful. That person serves. You know, I like having that person around because they help. Do people want you back in their home? Are you the kind of person that comes, just let someone else wash the dishes, just let someone else sweep the floor, just let someone else help with the serving? People can tell. A hostess who's got a big party can tell someone who comes in. They're beneficial. They're good. Friends can tell who's good, who's helpful, who helps out with the gang, and who's causing the problems. Are you good? Are you known for good fruits? What follows you around? Are they good works? If they are, you're a wise person. Do you carry the burdens of others, or are you the burden for others? The seventh pearl is unwavering. The alpha prefix on this Greek word is a simple negation of the term uh, divided, diakritos. So it comes to mean undivided in terms of loyalty. Or you could say no vacillation to this person without variance, not two-faced. It's the opposite of the word used in chapter 1, verse 6 of James, double-minded. It's also totally opposite the duplicitous tongue of chapter 3, 9, and 12 that blesses God and curses men. Unwavering shows the wisdom that is gained has been gained firmly and it has become entrenched. This is not someone who just looks wise at church on Christmas Sunday. It is easy to be spiritual at Christmas and Easter. But how about when nobody is looking at you and when life is down and life is disappointing and it's not going the way you want it? Why do you think God lets us go through these huge disappointments and trials in the first place to test how much faith and wisdom you have. We were told when you go through a trial, you're going to need wisdom. Ask God. He gives generously, but you have to ask in faith. He wants us to learn how far our faith has advanced because sometimes we think it's much further than it is and we realize it hasn't advanced as far as it should go and neither has the wisdom along with that faith and that's why you're in the trial. That's why you're facing what you're facing. Embrace that and learn from God in that. You'll grow stronger and be unwavering. Christ was unwavering. Everywhere he went, he set himself to do the will of God. He said in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven. By the way, no mere man says that. I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He set his face resolutely to go to the cross, and he went to the cross to do the will of the Father. Even at age 12, we saw him doing the will of the Father in the temple. In Galilee or Judea, it did not matter. At home or on the road, it did not matter. He was always doing the work of the Father. He was unwavering. Yes, even while being scourged and mocked, that's where the hypocrites finally break. No more, don't beat me. I'm sorry, maybe I got some of my doctrines wrong. Maybe I'm not who I think that I am. None of that. He knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what his mission was. And to the cross, he kept going. Crown of thorns, big, thick thorns stuck into his scalp mocked and spat upon, stripped naked. None of that deterred him from doing the will of God. Brothers and sisters, we have a long way to go. His last dying breath was, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. Resolute, unwavering. Religious people must not be religious only on Sundays. Christians must love God as much at work as they do in their Sunday best. They must do the will of the Father as much at home as they do when they're sharing in their small group Bible study. Anything short of that is ungodly inconsistency. Eighth and last, without hypocrisy, and this goes with that, 
unhypocritical, free from all pretense, nothing to hide, not wearing any masks, wholly genuine, not secretly sinning, hiding it from the brothers and coming along saying, amen, amen, wow, yeah, ah, everything's cool, not harboring resentment and coming and taking the Lord's Supper with hatred in your heart towards a brother, not a pretend Christian, not playing a little part, but sincere, sincere, transparent. How are you doing? I'm not doing so well, struggling. I kind of, I kind of was, I was upset at the Lord this past week. How are you doing? I don't know. I've had a lot of anxiety in my heart. I'm trying to learn to, to trust God more. Would you pray for me? There's someone who's sincere. I like that. I like that. By the way, when one person is sincere and humble and honest, kind of catches fire, doesn't it? It spreads a little bit. Someone else starts sharing and everything goes really well there. You could be a catalyst to that. Show a little humility. And uh, who knows what you may start. Christ taught his disciples in Luke 12, 1, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. We should be sincere. 1 Peter 1, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Well, verse 18 closes his thoughts with another agricultural analogy just to punctuate what he has said above. The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Please see again the emphasis on peace. This sums up the relationship between peace, righteousness, and wisdom. Peace, righteousness, and wisdom go together. Peace means not peace with God. That always undergirds it. But here, peace in the community, as the following verses indicate. Those who promote peace in the community of believers are like those who sow seeds which bring forth a crop of righteousness. Wisdom then is very fruitful, and its fruit becomes righteousness. Kurt Richardson writes, a church that is rich in reconciling activities, that is evangelism, the defense of the poor, counseling the troubled, offering hospitality to the stranger, providing shelter for the battered, sending gospel missionaries throughout the world, and many more, certainly reaps a rich harvest of righteousness. That's the point. Righteous deeds are multiplied in the congregation where there is peace and reconciliation. Dan McCartney writes, The tongue's fire spreads destruction, but the seeds of peace-doing disseminate into a harvest of righteousness. Some plants thrive in acidic soil. Some don't. If we want a harvest of righteousness in our work as a church here at Hope Bible Church, there has to be certain growing conditions for that to be present. The growing conditions of righteousness are peace. Peace. Peace brings righteousness just as righteousness urges on peace. And there you have it, beloved. Wisdom from above. That's how Jesus lived. That's how it would have been to have been around Jesus of Nazareth. That's how it is with the wise living among us. I'll close with a quote from the great church historian Philip Schaff. Jesus of Nazareth, he writes without money and arms, conquered more millions than Alexander the Great, Caesar, Muhammad, and Napoleon. Without science and learning, he shed more light on things human and divine than all philosophers and scholars combined. Without the eloquence of school, he spoke such words of life as were never spoken before or since, and produced effects which lie beyond the reach of orator or poet. 
Without writing a single line, he set more pens in motion and furnished themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, learned volumes, works of art, and songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. That is wisdom, true wisdom. May your life and my life be pursuing wisdom from above. As Pastor Tom mentioned today, part of having godly wisdom is having a willingness to be genuine and real with people. So however you speak of someone should be consistent, whether or not they're in the room. Having mercy for someone is not because they deserve it, but because they don't deserve it and you decide to help them anyway. These are traits that don't always come naturally, but they bring fruit in your life. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leake, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit HopeBible.org. Now, here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. In our next edition, Pastor Tom will walk us into chapter four of James, which introduces the idea of worldliness and what it means for the inner workings of your heart. It would be like if you scanned your heart and your mind for the real reasons why you were doing things, and the results indicated that you were in it for yourself and your own pleasures. There are some great points that Pastor Tom will make next time. To listen again to today's message in the book of James, visit hopebiblechurch.org and look under the sermons tab. Pastor Tom will return soon with another in-depth study of God's word. So join us again right here on Discover Hope.